Years and years ago, I heard preachers say all the time, and I still hear it sometimes, they say that, they tell their people that reading the Bible will solve all of your problems. That's not true. Reading the Bibles will not solve your problems, but applying what you read to your life will solve your problems. That's what we need to learn to do. Around the end of the last century, this would be 1999, all the Catholics and the Protestants and the Evangelicals churches got together and they put forth what came to be called the Catholic Evangelical Accord. It was a document that they all signed. They met and they all got together and it was a document that was a statement on how that they would band together to evangelize the world in the third millennium, where we're living right now, 2000. Among the Christians who took part of that and signed a document was Charles Colson. Most of you older folks know who Charles Colson was. He was an advisor to President Nixon that got caught up in the Watergate and spent some time in the federal uh, penitentiary and became a Christian. And now, then after that, he led great great uh, uh, Christian revivals and did all kinds of things. You know, Pat Robinson from the 700 Club, most of you know who he is. Bill Bright, who uh, is the head of Campus Crusade. A guy by the name of J.I. Packer, who was an an Anglican theologian uh, and a Calvinist, and he was in on it. Billy Graham was part of the the program. Uh, Dr. Larry Lewis, who I believe is the Southern Baptist Convention head guy of missions. And uh, Jesse Miranda, who was in charge of all the Assembly of Gods. And, all, of course, all the head Catholic people were there. And they all got together in this. And in the document that they put out, it, it, it talked about five things that they wanted to accomplish. And it's under that. You can go on Google it. It's on, it's on the Google, Google search. You can find it. It started out by saying, we affirm together. And it talked about that. Then it talked about, we hope together. Talked about what they hope to do. It talked about we search together. It talked about we contend together, like contending for the faith. And then it talked about we witness together. And the whole concept was built around one fundamental uh, aspect, and it was simply that Christianity in the third millennium is to be advanced in many diverse ways. In other words, any way you want it. In other words, anything you want. It didn't have one statement in it on the second coming of Christ. It didn't have one statement in it on hell or the rapture or heaven or the death of Christ. It didn't have one statement in it on how to win somebody to Christ. There was no Romans road. wasn't even a Matthew turnpike. There was nothing in it, nothing in it that laid out anything about salvation or understanding God's wisdom and his word. Nothing about the fires of hell. Nothing about eternal damnation. There wasn't any verse. I thought you would have the verse Proverbs 11.30 that I gave you. It wasn't in there. In fact, to me, the whole thing was kind of elusive because I know my history a little bit. And in the Council of Trent in 1545, the Roman Catholic Church called a council to pronounce 150 anathemas. That's curses on Bible-believing Christians. Here we are at the end of the millennium, uh, or at the beginning of the, uh, 2000, and they're all trying to get together when every one of those 150 uh, curses are still on the books as far as the Roman Catholic Church is concerned. One of them was, if anybody says a sinner was justified by faith alone, 
let him be accursed. And here we are all trying to get together. Welcome to the year 2000, the third century, that in my mind will post certainly usher in the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet every Christian evangel- uh, evangelical, every one of these guys in America thought it was a great thing. I mean, it was a, it was a document on evangelism without the Bible or any reference to the Bible as authoritative, final authority. No reference to the blood atonement, but a reference to that you're okay and I'm okay and whatever we believe, let's just take that and through the diversity of our religions, evangelize the world. It was a movement that we see around us today to get rid of salvation as the doctrine of the Bible and make salvation an experience. Make salvation a feeling. Make salvation an encounter. All of the men, all the main Bible doctrines uh, become secondary issues. Now it is diversity. This is what we call today progressive Christianity. It's where you leave the Bible behind. Everybody is okay. Don't fault anybody for what they believe because we all love God and everybody working together no matter what it is. This is nothing more than a worldly Christian pragmatic approach to the world. The end will always justify the means. And that's where it was. So we learned last week some great things, and we want to carry it on today. And today we're going to be in Proverbs chapter 8, verses 7 uh, through 21. Now, to me, and I've said this to you before, Proverbs chapter 8 is probably the deepest chapter in the Bible, depth as far as spiritually concerned. It's, it's an incredible chapter. We talked about it uh, uh, when we went through the seven pillars. I showed you how that when we studied the doctrine of Christ, that Proverbs chapter 8 forms the basis and the foundation for that, going way back before Genesis 1. Not today, but you'll see it as we come on through this chapter. And in this passage, the whole chapter really, it's really about Christ. Christ in the figure of wisdom and understanding. And what follows here is the layout of understanding and a wisdom of God, which is found only in the person of Christ. And this will be our second lesson on Proverbs chapter 8. Now let me read it for you, and then we'll, we'll pray, and then we'll get into it here. For my mouth shall speak truth, and wickedness is an abomination to my lips. All the words of my mouth are in righteousness. There is nothing froward or perverse in them. They are all plain to him that understandeth, and right to them that find knowledge. Receive my instruction, and not silver, and knowledge rather than choice gold. For wisdom is better than rubies, and all the things that may be desired are not to be compared to it. I, wisdom, dwell with prudence, and find out knowledge of witty inventions. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil, pride, and arrogancy, and the evil way, and the froward mouth do I hate. Counsel is mine and sound wisdom. I am understanding. I have strength. By me, kings reign and uh, princes decree justice. By me, princes rule and nobles, even all the judges of the earth. I love them that love me, and those that seek me early shall find me. 
Riches and honor are with me, yea, durable riches and righteousness. My fruit is better than gold, yea, than fine gold, and my revenue than choice silver. I lead in the way of righteousness in the midst of the paths of judgment, that I may cause those that love me to inherit substance, and I will fill their treasures. Now, Father, help us today to to glean from this all that you have for us, and there's so much in here, and there's no way that we'll get through all of this today, and that's not our intent. Our intent is just to walk through verse by verse and to glean the great truths that you have for us. Lord, these are good people. They're here today, uh, most of them, if not all of them, not because they love me or they love this church, though they do. They're here mostly because they love your word and they love you. And they have a desire to grow and be more like you every day. They're all on different levels. Some move a little faster than others. But inside their heart, Lord, that you only you can see, you know that they love you and they love your word. It's my job to help them on whatever level, to feed them, to give them, to be there for them, to bring them along and all that you try to do for them. And I thank you for the men and women in this church, the families that we have that will invest their life, in a, like that little Chinese guy, that they'll go out and they'll take in and they'll help and they'll be there, that no task is too great, no responsibility is too hard. Because they understand that at the end of the day, our job is to evangelize the world. And we'll thank you and praise you today in Jesus' name for the sake we ask it. Amen. Now, I'm big on breaking things down in the Bible because I'm pretty stupid and I got to kind of get it down where I can grasp it. And uh, I broke this section down into seven sections. Now, I know seven in the Bible is, is the number of perfection. I'm not that spiritual. I didn't do it on that basis. It just happened to work out that way. But this is a great passage of Scripture, and I, I wanted to break it down so we didn't lose anything, because there is a ton of good, solid material in here. So let's begin to look at each part of this, and, and uh, it'll look at this like a natural division, and I think it'll, it'll kind of help you put it together. Now, the first section we're going to look at is chapter 8. We won't get through all of these today, but we'll get through some of them. Our first uh, section today will be chapter 8, verse 7, 8, and 9, and here's what it says. For my mouth shall speak truth, and wickedness is an abomination to my lips. All the words of my mouth are in righteousness. There is nothing froward or perverse in them. They are all plain to him that understandeth, and right to them that find knowledge. Now, if you're paying attention here and keeping score, so to speak, you notice that again the Holy Spirit of God draws our attention to the word words. Verse 18, or verse 8. And... Uh, and you, the words of God, the plain, simple, understandable words of God. I, I wrote a book a number of years ago on how to study the Bible, and I showed you that the key to learning the Bible is simply about 15 or 20 basic common words, that when you understand what they mean in the Bible, and you always take the definition that the Bible gives them and apply that definition when you, when you read the Bible, it pretty much unlocks the Bible. And uh, this will be the this will be the sixth time, uh, this will be the sixth time that uh, you have found this here, uh, uh, where he talks about words. He did it in chapter one, verse two. He did it in chapter one, verse twenty-three. He did it again in chapter four, verse five, and then again in chapter four through twenty, and then chapter seven, one, and then here. So we see that that he puts a lot of emphasis on the individual words in the Bible. A couple of Thursday nights ago, we were talking about the Bible or something, and I talked about the, uh, the flesh and Kincaid formula for reading. 
This is what at one time, I don't know if they still use it or not, but this is what the public school system used to develop the level of skill of the readings of their books. And when it was applied to the King James 1611 authorized version, uh, it come out that your Bible is written in a fourth and fifth grade level. And uh, 95% of it is one and two syllable words. Uh, when they put it up against the new King James Bible, which everybody likes to go to today, they found it was sixth grade level. When they put it up to the new ASV, it was sixth grade level also. When they got it, put it to good news to modern man, it was seventh grade level. And when they put it up against the NIV, which everybody wants to go to today, it was eighth grade level. And it shows you that the most simplest book that you could ever get your hands on in a form of a Bible is a King James 1611 authorized version. God uses plain words to speak to us. William Tyndale, 1532. We talked about him a couple of weeks ago. I think it was probably in the same question. He, he, he translated the second English translation and, uh, into English for the common man. And when Tyndale was meeting with some of his people and taught what he wanted to do, they were somewhat of opposition, didn't think he ought to do it. And, about, and it goes on to say, the story goes on to say that he looked out the window and he saw a, a, a guy, a boy, plowing in the field across the way. And he looked at all these great learned men and he says, men, he says, someday that plow boy will know more of the scriptures than all of the scholars in England. And that was his goal. And he attained that goal because he put out a common Bible for a common man. And uh, that, that Bible was plain. It's always been plain. The Bible is plain on the fact that there's no diversity on how you go to heaven. You can't get to heaven by a number of ways. There's only one way. Straight is the gate and narrow is the way, the Bible says. You can't get there by joining a church. Well, if you get to heaven by joining the church, then Christ, why did he die? He should have just said, I'm going up to heaven. Join a church. If baptism is what saves you, why did he get died on the cross again? Why didn't it just say, go to church, get baptized, you're in. Why did he suffer and die on the cross? Because only through the blood of Christ can salvation come to you and me. See how plain that is? Nothing complicated about it. The Bible never changes to fit society. That's the big movement in progressive Christianity. Change the Bible to fit society. So we get all these new translations and all these new things coming out. The Bible never changes its stance. The Bible is plain. In fact, that's really what's wrong with people with the Bible. It's too plain. It's too plain. It spells out sin just the way it is. And we don't want to hear what sin is today. You see, hell's a plain word, isn't it? But we don't like that, so in the new translations, we change it to Hades. Kind of a softer approach. Damnation is a plain word. Who can't understand it? But we can't, don't want to talk about that anymore, so we'll use the word condemn. A little softer, see? Sin is a plain word in the Bible. But we don't want to talk about our sins. We'll talk about, but we'll talk about our shortcomings, our faults. Bible talks about an unsaved man likened to a dog. And I don't mean to be gross here, but a dog always returned to his vomit. And all the way through the book of Proverbs and 2 Peter, you find it likened to a man and a woman going back to their sin. But in all the new Bibles, it's regurgitate. When I grew up, there was drunks. They're drunks. Staggering down blind drunks. But you can't be a drunk anymore. Now you're a chronic alcoholic. When I grew up, we had drug heads, dope heads. People who were strung out on drugs. We called it what it was. Now they're substance abusers. 
See how nice that sounds? You almost want to be one. When I grew up, it was called sexual perversion. Now it's called open-minded and progressiveness. When I grew up, homosexual and lesbianism was what it was. Now it's an alternative lifestyle. Okay? The standard teaching is now today that God didn't destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. This is online. I've read it so many places. I've heard it so many times. God didn't destroy Sodom and Gomorrah because of the homosexual activity that was going on. No, no, no. That's too plain. No, God now destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah because there was a lack of hospitality in that city. So, I love it. Next time my wife won't have people over that I want to have, next time your wife won't have people over to cook dinner, accuse her of sodomy. (laughs) You see the trouble you get in when you just don't leave it plain? I mean, it's plain. I don't know what to tell you. Now, you know, so that's why the world hates this Bible and has to get rid of it. And by the way, it's going to hate you and want to get rid of you if you believe it. Verse 7 says, for, all, for my mouth shall speak truth and wisdom. Verse 8 says, all the words of my mouth are in righteousness. Verse 9 says, they are plain. Now, in a Christian's life, now this is something you want to write down and learn, just keep in mind here. In a Christian's life, when they start to go down the wrong road, and we, you see it from time to time, do you know what goes first in their life? Long before they leave the church, any church. Now, you see somebody and they've been in churches for a long time and then they're, they don't come anymore and they're gone and they're gone by the wayside. And, you know, everybody says, oh, they, 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 they left the church. Well, that's true. But let me tell you something. Let me tell you what they left long before they left the physical building. They left the book. The plain words. You see, that book is too plain. You can't hide or pretend. Now, there's a lot of things in life you can, you can fake. I, 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 I get it. There's a lot of things in life you can pretend. But the funniest thing in the world is to watch somebody who's a Christian try to pretend they're spiritual when they're having all kinds of problems in their life. I, I, love, the, I love the police videos. Uh, I mean, the, the greatest thing in the world, I, I, the funniest thing in the world, is you ever see a guy who's strung out on drugs Try to pretend that he wasn't. I mean, his pupils look like pie plates. He goes through all of the cold and the sweat and all of the stuff and all this stuff and got to get, you know, and then he he or she's gone for an hour and come back and now they're just fine. It was the the fresh air that helped him. You ever see a drunk on the police videos where the guy pulls somebody over DWI and the funniest thing in the world is they'll try to watch a drunk who's arguing with the police officer he's not drunk, walk a simple straight line. I've seen him stand up and buy the car and say, I haven't been drinking, and he's sliding down the car. I've seen him try to say, well, put your finger to your nose. Man, he got, that guy poked his eyeball out before he got his nose. The most hilarious thing in the world is somebody who says, I'm right with God, I'm doing what's right. When you're not. Hey, if you're saved 
and you get out of fellowship and try to pretend that it's okay with the Lord, you know what, and it's a sweet time, and oh, I'm just having a time with Jesus, you know every time you go to that book, you get nailed. That's why you don't read it. You can go read the concordance, and you'll get a verse that will hit you between the eyes. You'll go look at the map section and get clobbered. The Holy Spirit of God is not going to let you wander. I've seen it a lot of times. I've seen guys that had a problem. They want to keep everything for themselves. I've been in churches where the preacher said one thing about money, and the guy walks out and says, well, that's all he ever talks about is money. He said one thing in passing about it. You know what that guy's problem is? You see, we can't hide it. We can't hide it. And and I'll tell you something else. It's not only plain to you inside that you've lost the joy, joy, joy down in your heart, but it's plain to everybody else. That Bible says in 1 Corinthians 8, 3, that if any man love God, the same is known of him. And I'll tell you something else. It also says if any man, it doesn't say it, but it carries the context. If you don't love God, it shows. Listen, when that book gets into your soul, when that book gets into your spirit and your life, and you're hitting all eight cylinders, let me tell you something. Your face shows it. Your attitude shows it. Your countenance shows it. Your speech shows it. Your action shows it. Your family shows it. And oh yeah, you're a church attendant shows it. Paderinsky was a great piano player. And he used to say that if I miss one day of practice, he used to practice eight hours a day. He said, if I I miss one day of practice, I can tell that I'm not as good as I should be. He said, if I miss two or three days of practice, that the people, the, the music critics that listen to me can tell I'm not up to speed. And he said, if I take a week off and don't practice, everybody can tell. You know why? Because when you get the Word of God in you, it changes you. You don't get that. If you're really saved, it changed you. And you're so inept. No, I'm not going to say stupid. I'm not going to say that. But you're so stupid that you don't understand that just as you change to him, everybody saw it. Here it comes. When you change back from him, everybody sees it. What's the matter with you? That Bible's plain. There's nothing complicated about it. Amen. Nothing at all. I, I try to match my preaching up to the book in a number of ways, but one of the ways I try to do it is plain. You may not like everything I say. You may not like anything I say. You may not like some of it. What are you shaking your heads for? You may not like p- part of what I say, but you'll never leave this church saying to yourself, I wonder what he really thinks about that. <laughs> The Bible's plain, and Bible preaching needs to be plain. I, li- I like the last part of verse 9. Not only is it plain to me that understandeth, but it also is right to them that find knowledge. In other words, when you love God and the Word of God, you love it all. You don't just love the part that make you look good. You don't just love the part that make you feel good. You love it all. Proverbs 27, 7 says, The full soul loatheth the honeycomb. But to the hungry soul, every bitter thing is sweet. Everything's good to you. Not just the parts that, that makes you feel good or makes you look good, but you everything because it's right and you love right. I didn't say we always do right. But I am saying that you always love right. The knowledge of God is to know right from wrong. 
and understand. And understanding is the want to do right with the things of God, even when we don't do them. It'll be the thing that will always bring us back. And I must say to you today that this is the missing element in Christianity. This is the missing element today. No sense but Christians between right and wrong. No sense of understanding what's right and loving right. Section 2, verses 10-11. Receive my instruction and not silver and knowledge rather than choice gold. For wisdom is better than rubies and all the things that may be desired are not to be compared with it. Now, I'd say that this is probably of all the exhortations in this chapter, and maybe even the Bible, for American Christianity, probably any American, this is the hardest one. The great dangers of the blessings of God in our lives. We all want the blessings of God. We all want God to shower us with the blessings, give us all the things in our life, take away all the negative stuff, make everything good. We all want that, but I want to tell you something. There is a real danger in the fact of the blessings of God. We saw it Thursday night. Delano asked the question about the difference between the Laodicean church and the Philadelphian church. The difference is so clear when I laid it out. It's simply the difference of the fact that one church had nothing except the word of God. The other church had everything except the word of God. Now, gold and silver in the Bible, when dealing with the world system, will always be connected to the worldly things that we all put a high value on. Bible says in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10, that the love of money is the root of all evil. Now, I know that the love of money singular is not the root of all evil, but the love of money goes back to the single thing that kills all of us, and that is covetousness. And that'll be the root of everything. You see, the mistake Americans make is to think that the riches of this world, the possessions we have, will make you happy or make you complete or make you satisfied. But it never will. All you have to do is look at the people who have that kind of lifestyle on the outside. And boy, on the outside, it looks good. But on the inside, their personal life is an absolute disaster. How many movie stars who could buy whatever they want, wind up committing suicide, wind up on drugs, wind up in alcohol rehab places? I mean, over and over and over again. They wind up in divorce. They wind up with family issues. They wind up with great depression. Some of the most miserable people you ever saw in your life could afford anything they wanted to buy. And God's people are the same way. We put our value systems on the wrong things. There's many of God's people that take better care of their in-ground swimming pool than they do their own time with the Word of God. There's people, save people, who spend more money on their lawns every year than they do to evangelize the world. You want an example of that? Come by and see my lawn. My neighbor lady begged me for years to get rid of the wood pile that was by my tree in the front yard because she was afraid it was going to have termites in it. So I finally did it. I finally did it. And I'll tell you what, there's a big old bear spot there. And, I'm, and I, I can't grow anything. I mean, I, I go buy grass seed. I might as well just throw my money someplace else. I mean, I put it down. I do everything, and it doesn't ever grow. 
I can't grow flowers. I can't grow anything. I had an idea one time of starting a garden. I grew rocks. <laughs> so I went to the, I went to the place, and I, and, I, and I just know this doesn't sound like a big thing to you, but to a guy like me who can't do anything, it's, it's a pretty big deal. So I go to True Value, you know, and I get this old guy who's been around forever, and I said, I explained my problem, and he pulled me back in the corner, and he said, buy this, and here's what you do. And so I went home, and I, I, I followed his instructions. You got to water it twice a day. You put it down, and you rake it in, and then you put some more down and rake it in, get it underneath. That was a mistake that I made. I just throw it up in the air. I read Johnny Appleseed one time. I thought it worked for apple trees. It'll work for grass. It doesn't. <laughs> Four days later, little things coming up. Watering it. Blessing it. Watering it. <laughs> Nine days, it's that big. You ought to see it now. I'm not even cutting it. I won't touch it. I walked out the other day and I was so excited. I was yelling through the neighborhood. I got grass. I got grass. I got grass. The neighbor said, you're going to get arrested. You try to sell that stuff. He didn't understand what I was talking about. I got a guy across the street that checks the oil on his car every day. Every day of his life, he checks his oil. Every morning, if you go out there between 8, 30, 9 o'clock, the hood's up, he's pulling that dipstick, and he's checking that oil. And I watch him, and I think to myself, you know what? There's a guy who won't get in that car to go to work without checking the level of his oil, and God's people just get up, get in the car, go to work, and never check the oil level of the Holy Spirit of God in their lives. I'll tell you. I'm talking about the true riches. Luke chapter 16, verse 11. I always thought that was a great parody, that the true riches are found in Luke chapter 16, verse 11. Because the true riches are found in a 16, 11. But that's just me. He says, I say unto you, make, make to yourself friends of the mammon of a righteousness, that when ye fail, that they may receive you into everlasting habitations. He that is faithful in that which is least is faithful also in much. And he that is unjust in the least is unjust also in much. If therefore ye have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will commit to you trust the true riches? No, ser- no servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Now, I, I, I think that's a great verse. And the, the thing that I want to bring to your attention here is a number of things, but the first thing I want you to see, that this is talking about the true riches versus the false riches. And the thing I want you to see is down there toward the end of verse 9, it says that when ye fail, because I want to say something to you folks, in life we're all going to fail. Nobody's going to go through life without failing. We're all going to fail. Some of us fail greater than others, but we're all going to fail. And on a scale with God, it's all the same. We're all going to fail. The point he's trying to make is when you do, and it's a bit of sarcasm here. The point he's trying to make that is when you do fail, it won't be the riches and the things of this world that gets you through. There'll be some things that come up in your life that your money can't fix. There'll be some things that'll come up in your world that your possessions won't get you through. There'll be some things that'll come up. And yes, I am preaching right now in case you haven't figured it out yet. There will be some things that will happen in your life that you will fail at. That if you don't have the true riches, you're cooked. That's what he's saying. Exactly what he's saying. 
I mean, God's people today are absolutely so dysfunctional. What he's saying here is this, and it's the contrast between the unrighteous mammon, which is the things of the world, and the true riches, which are the things of God. And what he's saying here is, you can't even handle the unrighteous mammon in your life. You're so dysfunctional, you can't even get your bills paid. You can't even do this. You can't even handle this. You can't get your family running right. You can't do this. How in the world, why do you think I would entrust to you the true riches when you can't even take care of the worldly things in your life? That's what he's saying. That's exactly what he's saying. It's the concept of stewardship. Stewardship is the ability, ability to manage and control the things in our lives, not just the spiritual things. We talk about stewardship all the time, and so many preachers use that to beat people up over giving money. And that's all they focus on because that's all all about. I got news for you. For a New Testament Christian, there are seven areas of stewardship that you better have under control, and not all of them have to do with the Bible. You have to have control of your own personal life. Your family, your finances. Because if you're dysfunctional in the little things, you're going to be dysfunctional in the big things. Nobody is dysfunctional in, well, I'm dysfunctional with this in my life. But boy, I can really handle the Bible. Not according to the Word of God, you can't. Bible says in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 6, that godliness with contentment is great gain. The reason we don't have anything or have what we need is simply because we haven't done right with what we did have. Money can't buy that peace that that gives you your soul the rest that it needs. As I said earlier, there'll be some things and some needs come up in your life that possessions and money can't fix. And the quicker you learn that, the better off you're going to be. And that's the problem. You see, man lost something back in Genesis chapter 3, didn't he? We know that when Adam sinned back there and sin was passed upon all man, that Adam became incomplete. And man now, you and I, before we were saved, was incomplete. And this is what man does. He, he knows he's empty. He knows there's a hole inside. He knows that he's not complete. But he's not willing to look at God and his death on the cross as the, as the filling of that void in his life. So what he does is he tries to fill that void with all the things of the world. He thinks if he has, gets married. How many times have you seen a couple that were having marital problems? And they get the idea, well, if we have a child, that'll fix the marital problems. It won't. No more than the hole in your soul because of your incompleteness can be fixed by the world. Or what the world offers. Or how much money you have. You go out and buy a new car, and it's everything you wanted, and it's a Z60, 70, 48, or whatever it is, and you get in that thing, and you drive it around for a week, and you're on top of the world. And then it loses its glitter, and you're right back where you were before. You find a relationship, and now you're happy. I found the dream of my life. Oh, boy, she's everything, he's everything. I got what I want. And for a short time, it looks that way. till the reality sets in that it isn't going to fix it. There's only one thing, ladies and gentlemen, that's going to fix the hole that is in all of us, and that is a personal relationship with Christ through the salvation, through the blood of Christ. Nothing else is going to do it. It never will. It never will. 
the peace that passes all understanding and the contentment of life and joy can only be achieved by filling that gap in your life with Christ and His Word. But everybody tries to do it. People try to think, well, the party life, going out and do it. That'll just lead you to the booze. And you get addicted to the booze. And you think that then your life is a disaster. Or it addicts you to drugs and your life is a disaster. Now, I'm not against addiction. I'm not against addiction. I may preach against drug addiction. I may preach against alcohol addiction or pornography addiction or any other addiction. But I want you to understand, I am not against addiction. I have an addiction this morning. And I want to confess it to you. Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 15, that the household of Stephanus was addicted to the ministry. Amen. There's my addiction. Amen. You know what your problem is? You got the wrong addiction, pal. You got addicted to the things of the world. You need to get addicted to the things of God. Amen. And I know how addictions go. I've worked with them all my life. You see somebody that's an alcoholic, they go for a day or two without having a drink. Boy, they come unraveled. Somebody's on drugs, man, they go for a couple of hours, after they come down off the high, you can tell it, they start going unraveling. You know why? You're addicted. Stick around me for about four or five days when I don't get in the book. I'll be just as rattled as you are. You see, I have an addiction, but my addiction is the book, the ministry. You put the wrong addiction in your life, and you think it's going to help you. It ain't going to help you. At camp last week, I, I enjoy going up there and, and just kind of stepping back and not having any responsibilities and just watching everything. And It always takes me back to where God started with me, which was at a camp, Camp Choff. Way back when, I had just gotten right with God, and Mel Sabaka was the camp director, and he took me out to that camp, and I spent every summer out there for the next three or four years, preached out there, got involved in all kinds of, where I developed the gospel and the stars was out there. Everything that God did with me, he did in that early stages. It's where I met Dr. Ruckman when he used to come and preach senior high camp. I'd take my vacation every year, two weeks, and I'd, I'd go out to that camp and spend it out there with those kids. Uh, because that's where I learned and understood how it all went together. And I'll never forget one time that there was a little gal there. I think she was from up in Cleveland area someplace. Just a beautiful girl, about 18 or 19, 18 years old. Couldn't be 19, but 18 years old. She could sing like a bird. And they had her sing one night, and she got up there, and before she sang, she gave the greatest testimony of what God had done for her. Now, this girl had been offered all kinds of record deals and everything wanted her because she was incredibly a good singer. And she got up there and she told that testimony and then she sang the song, I'd Rather Have Jesus. I'll tell you what, I have never heard anything. You talk about heaven come down and glory filled my soul. And at the end of that service, she was up there. You know how all the young girls are. They want to come up and meet her and know her and everything. And I was standing to the side there. I was still just getting over what she sang. And I listened to what she said. And she was coming up there, and the girls were saying, boy, that was a great testimony, and I love your song, and I want to grow up to be like you. And one little girl came up, and she said, you know what? She said, that was the greatest thing in the world. She said, I want you to know, I would give the world to have the testimony that you got. That little 18-year-old girl looked down and said, that's good, honey, but you know what? That's exactly what it cost me, was the world. That's what it cost her, the world. I'm going to tell you something. I'm telling you. I mean, these things in this world may look like they glitter, but I won't tell you something like an old preacher said one time, all that glitters is not gold. 
Now look at the third section here. Verses 12 through thir- and 13. It says, I wisdom dwell with prudence and find out knowledge of witty inventions. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil, pride, and arrogancy. And the evil way and the froward mouth do I hate. Now we have a word that came in here that I want you to mark in your Bible if you don't have, and it's the word prudence. And prudence is wisdom applied in a more cautious way to be prudent about something. And then it says in verse 12 that wisdom will find out the knowledge of witty inventions. In other words, the Word of God will reveal all the phony stuff that man puts out to get himself around the truth of God that is out there, put out by, as we've talked about, the evil man and the strange woman, and people void of understanding get into it, think it's good, think it's great, And all it is is a man-made, trumped-up concept to get you around the plain teaching of the Word of God. Now, the greatest book in the Bible that deals with this will be the book of Ecclesiastes. And we're not going to go through the book of Ecclesiastes today, but the book of Ecclesiastes is a book that's written about under the sun. Everything that man does on this earth. Book of Ecclesiastes is not really about what God's doing. It's about what man's doing to try to get around God. And that's really what it's about. And you'll find that if you come through that book, you'll find the ten vanities that go against God that man puts up. The vanity of wisdom, the vanity of labor, the vanity of purpose, the vanity of ambition, the vanity of fun and fame and money and selfishness and covetousness and reward. All these things without God, the Bible says, is vanity. And all of them without God's truth will guide you uh, to a dead-end street of life, which we see all the time. Then throughout the book, he does this. He goes into the great detail on the witty inventions of man. I don't know if you know it or not, but there's 34 philosophies found in the book of, of Ecclesiastes, which pretty much covers all the bases of what man comes up with. Bible talks about that there's many devices in a man's heart. But the counsel of the Lord, that shall stand. You know, the word philosophy is, I don't know if you know this or not, but it's a, it's a combination of two words. The first word is philo, which is the Greek word for love. The second word is Sophia. Sophia was the Greek goddess of love, or excuse me, of wisdom. So you have philosophy, philo, Sophia, philosophy. That's where it comes from, to love wisdom. That's what it's supposed to be all about. But in reality, man comes up with those things for one reason, and that is to get around the plain teaching of the Word of God. So Solomon critiques them all. In chapter 1, verse 2, he comes through pessimism, which is the teaching that all reality is essentially evil and there's no good in the world. In in, in chapter 1, verse 13, he comes through and lays out metaphysics, which is a science of belief that the universe is an orderly system. So Darwin based his theory of evolution on that when we know from the Bible that the universe is in chaos. He goes through in chapter 1, verse 16, Epicureanism, which all knowledge is derived from experience, our senses, our feelings, our flesh. See that all the time today. Then he goes through uh, Hedonism in chapter 2, verse 10, that pleasure is the highest plane of life. That all man does and should do is get to the point where he pleasures himself and everything he does brings him pleasure and satisfaction. Then he goes through pragmatism, chapter 2, verse 25. And that is the fact that, uh, that intellect 
uh, more uh, more intellect uh, in in results that uh, that in truth. There's no real searching for truth. It's all up here in your mind that you're your own god. You become everything that you want. The pragmatic approach simply is that the end justifies the mean. Whatever we do, then you have theism. In chapter, in chapter 3, verse 14, that's the basic belief that God created it all and then turned it over to an evolutionary process. We call it theistic evolution. You get over in Kansas and they have the great debates between uh, evolution and, and, and the Bible. And they've taken a middle ground because everybody who stands on the Bible gets looked at like a fool and made fun of. So now they've come to the point where they don't want to be laughed at anymore. And so they come up, they get away with the creation concept. And now they talk about intelligent design. See, sounds nice, sounds respectable. Intelligent design, that could be anybody. I just stick with God, let them laugh, and remember the great principle that he that laughs, laughs, laughs best. And stick it to them. But that's just me. He talks about paganism in chapter 4, worship of the dead. And contacting the dead. This will be the New Age movement, and praising the dead more than the living. He talks about socialism in 6.2, the government taking care of the people. It all belongs to the government, no personal property, where we're headed in America. He talks about Gnosticism in chapter 8, the mixing of Greek, Judaism, and, uh, and Christianity uh, thought to the common man. This is where the Alexandrian cult came in and all that stuff takes place. He talks about the modernism, and that is the fact that there's no right, there's no wrong, uh, there's no reason uh, of anything, everything is okay, it's all mixed together, and the Bible completely changes. This is your progressive Christianity. And then humanism, chapter 11. You are your own God. Man is basically good and not evil and has the ability without God to rise up and solve his issues. This is what Solomon goes through in this great book with a lot of other ones. At the end of the book, he says in chapter 12, verse 13, he talked about there's many devices in a man's heart. But when he comes down to the end of the book, he simply says this, fear God and keep his commandments. It's the whole duty of man. Verse 13 says, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil, pride and arrogancy and the evil way, and the froward mouth do I hate. Now, in our text here, the fear of the Lord will lead a man to hate four things. And you want to get these down because they're in the text here. The first one is pride. Now, pride was the first sin listed in the Bible way back there in Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28, that Lucifer had that got him in trouble. Now, pride, you want to remember this, pride is inward. Pride is never outward. Pride is always inward. But the next thing he hates is arrogancy. Now, arrogancy is pride that is inward, now revealed outwardly. Pride inside, when it manifests itself, it becomes arrogancy. And then the third thing is evil. That's the lifestyle that once pride and arrogancy is left unchanged, and you get evil in your life, that's the lifestyle that, that pride and arrogancy will produce in time. You see it all the time. I mean, follow the, I mean, follow the procedure. You can think about it all the time. You just never think about it in the context. Pride. That's when you or a person won't get right with God. There's some sin in your life that you won't get right, so you get prideful about it. Ever see it? Sure you do, all the time. Maybe in your own life. I've seen it in mine. But you see it all the time. That pride is inward. But then people start to question. People start to see that you're not who you used to be. 
the change has already happened. You no longer love the thing. The joy, joy, joy has gone out of your heart. So now you've got to defend yourself that you're okay when you're not. So the pride inside now manifests itself in arrogancy. You're right when you're wrong, okay? And you won't get right. So your pride now turns to be an arrogancy. That <clears throat> defending your position of that stronghold drives you deeper into your sin. Now <clears throat> you start looking for other people who have the same problems you have because birds of a feather flock together and you need a support group. And this is where the evil way of life now comes into your world. So you went through pride, wouldn't get right, defended yourself, turned to arrogancy, went into an evil lifestyle, and now the fourth one, the froward mouth. Out of the abundance of the heart, your pride, the mouth speaks. See? Now see how easy that is? People in sin are not, not I mean, they're, they're just, it's, it's just a four little point outline. They get prideful inwardly. They won't get right with God. They got to defend themselves. Outwardly, it turns into arrogancy. Then they stay that way, won't get right. They get into an evil life form. And then pretty soon, what's in the heart manifested out of their mouth. It's simple. Section 4. <clears throat> 14, 15, and 16. Counsel is mine and sound wisdom. I am understanding. I have strength. By me, kings reign and princes decree justice. By me, princes rule and nobles, even all the judges of the earth. Now, there's a great couple of things in here. First thing I want you to mark down in your Bible, if you don't have it, that doctrinally, <clears throat> this points directly to the second coming of Christ. You ought to be able to see that. It shows us that God is in charge of all history, leads to the end result, and that'll be Christ's coming. Uh, the judges there are the 12 apostles who sit on 12 thrones judging Israel. You find that all through the Bible. And that's what you got in the doctrinal sense. But yet in a practical application, it simply states a great truth. And boy, this is something you want to get down. Forget the doctrinal, even though that's important to understand your Bible. But getting the doctrinal, missing the practical, <clears throat> is the wrong thing to do on this particular case. Because the practical thing is I want you to see is this. Counsel is mine and sound wisdom. I am understanding, I have strength. Now, we all want strength of God in our lives. We all want that. We all want that. But I want to tell you something. The strength of God only lies in your wisdom and understanding of God. And this is why God's people are so weak today. This is why people can't get past their problems. They want to solve their problems, but they don't want to do what they have to do to solve their problems. They want the miracle spiritual pill. They want the love potion number nine. They want the spiritual magic formula that, that you take and all your problems go away. They don't want to take responsibility. Even when they do take responsibility, they don't want to do what they need to do. They'll say, I want to change my life. They'll say, I'm tired of the way it was. I'll say, well, I don't want to do this anymore. But when it comes down to disciplining and structuring themselves into a structure that will bring them out of that kind of lifestyle, they just don't have the strength to do it. And the strength of God, I'm going to say it again, the strength of God in your life and my life will only come from your understanding and the wisdom of God. Amen. You don't get in that book, you ain't going nowhere. It's just that simple. And it also says that if the kings and the princes... If the nations and the kingdoms of the world 
only exists because God allows it. And he through them ultimately will get the honor and the glory, good or bad. Now, if that's true, and it certainly is, what makes us think that we can do whatever we want and get away with it? You see, God is going to get the honor and glory out of everything we do. You're either going to go the hard way or the easy way. I was one time years ago, I used to work at a, a mall that just when I was a teenager, and it was F.W. Woolworths. I was a dishwasher. And I was still in high school, my, first, my second job. And it was an open mall at the top. It wasn't like the clothes ones you have today. And it was just kind of a long L-shaped thing. And I had support poles. And I, was, <clears throat> I wasn't really serving the Lord at the time. <clears throat> I hadn't gotten right with God yet. But I was loading dish trays up and looking out the big windows. And this woman was going down the mall. She had her boy, and she had come out of one of the stores down here. And evidently, the kid, who was probably about, oh, I don't know, 9 or 10, maybe I'm tough with kids' ages. He was just a little guy, but old enough to know better. And he must not have got whatever he wanted in the store. And he's crying and squalling, making a scene. And the woman is obviously embarrassed, and her job now is only one thing. Get this kid to the car where I can kill him. Throw him in the trunk, whatever I got to do. So she's got this kid by the arm. And this kid, they're going down there, and she's pulling him. And the poles are about as far from here, all the way down. That kid pulled a pole, is wrapping his arm and leg around there, squalling and screaming, and she can't pull him off. She gets him loose. She gets him to the next one, and he wraps his leg around that pole. And all, I, I looked out the window, and every pole, they hit every pole. Every pole till they got down there. Why she just didn't knock him unconscious and call 911 or whatever, but pole to pole to pole till she got to the car. Years later, in in the ministry, I thought to myself, you know what? That's exactly how God gets some of his people home to heaven. We're hanging on pole to pole with what we want. Screaming, whining, God like that mother, loving mother, caring mother. I don't know what she did when she got him home, but in there she was very much (laughs) as good as control as she could have. But that kid was just hanging on, squalling and screaming from pole to pole. And I thought to myself, man, I've seen a lot of Christians go home to heaven just like that. Whining, crying, screaming because of what they didn't get. Hanging on from pole to pole to the things of this whole world. It's incredible. Incredible. It's one of those things where the Bible says that God has vessels of honor and God has vessels of dishonor. God is going to get the honor and glory out of our lives if we're his children one way or the other. We're either going to enjoy the ride or we're going to go from pole to pole. But he's going to get it out of us. He's going to get us home to heaven. That's one of the great things about the doctrine of eternal security. Most people can't grasp this today. When you got saved, back in the Old Testament, when Israel made their covenant with God through Abraham, God made them a promise. And you know, no matter what Israel has done, and no matter how God has come down and whacked them, and you talk about going from pole to pole screaming, God is always going to keep that promise to them. And you know, when you got saved, you didn't get a covenant like Israel did, but you got salvation through the blood of Christ. God took you into his family, but he gave you some promises. You know what one of those promises is? He's going to get you to have home to heaven no matter what he's got to do. It may be in a casket. It may be pole to pole. It may be in a wheelchair. 
It may be walking up with your head high and your Bible under your arm, proclaiming the truth of God to everybody you see, but he's going to get you home because he made a promise to you. And the Bible says, in hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised for the foundation of the world, Titus chapter 1. You're going to get his home. Whether you get the honor and glory as a vessel of honor, or he gets the honor and glory as a vessel of dishonor, he's going to get the honor and glory. Now, this, this chapter in chapter 8 here is a great chapter. It's a great chapter. And we'll hold up there today, but you can see this chapter is loaded. And here's what I want to say to you. Don't get disconnected from me just yet. The practical principles of the Word of God in the form of Christ personified as wisdom and understanding. The Christian life is not you getting more of God. The Christian life is God getting more of you. We live in a world that wants to change the Bible. I live in a world where the Bible wants to change me. That's where you have to get. But you have to be willing to let it do that. It's about getting to the place in your life that you see the true riches. It's about realizing in a world of witty inventions the wisdom and understanding of God. His words are truth, wisdom, verse 7, and all the words are righteous, and they're plain and they're right. And when we get to where we need to be with God, we don't make excuses. We simply do right to the best of our ability. And when we don't, we don't make excuses. We know that we are the problem, not God, not the circumstances, not some other person. We're our own lives, and we're in charge of our own lives, and we need to take responsibility for them. And it's the principles of the Word of God that are going to get you through. We're all going to fail. But it's the Word of God that gets you through those failures. Without it, you're left to the witty inventions of man, and you'll be destroyed. Let's have a word of prayer. Don't forget, the folks are going to be back.